scripture reading is from Acts 8, 1 through 25. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or on page number 784 in your worship Bible. Please follow along as I read. And Saul approved of his, of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and, and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and, the, and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many, many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a, name, there was a man named St Simon who had previously pract practiced magic in the city and amazed people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he pre preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, or then they laid hands on him, on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was, was given through this, the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I lay, hands, I lay my, my, my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may, may be forgiven you. For I see that you, are, that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, and Simon, Simon answered Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come, may come upon me. And now, when they had testified and spoken of the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to the many villages of, of the Samaritans. This is the word of God. Well, we've been looking at the book of Acts, as I mentioned at the very beginning. We've seen how the church has grown from a very small group of people to a church which basically changed the whole world. 
few weeks ago, we stopped and thought about that church as it relates to our church. And we saw that when we started this church, we wanted to make sure that we didn't fall into one or two of common traps when churches begin. We wanted to see that the church is not primarily a place that I attend. It's not about the place that I go, as if somehow the building is where God is, and when I go there, God's there because the building is there. And so we don't want to be a church that just uh, is a place that people go to where the whole purpose is to preserve and to protect the institution. Neither do we want to be a church that treats the gospel as a product that I consume, that we just promote that product. But we saw a few weeks ago that the church is meant to be a people who are called. We call ourselves ecclesia, the Bible word for church, which just means, speaks about a people who are called and gathered and sent. And so our purpose is to propel the movement of what God is doing in the world. That's what we're trying to do over the course of our time here as we serve in this community. I mention that because in this text, which Carol just read for you, we see the beginnings of that movement really happening. Here's the point where we start to see to really gain traction. When this Scripture began, the church was a localized community filled only with Jews. They had various backgrounds. There were some cultural differences among them. We've taken a look at that. Some of them had Hellenistic backgrounds, and some of them had, had Hebraic backgrounds, but they were all Jews. They were all the same homogenous unit. They had one cultural, essentially one cultural background. Whether native to Jerusalem or not, they looked to Jerusalem as their spiritual home. The whole church was made of people very much like one another. But in the passage we looked at last week. The church had, uh, uh, had become a rather controversial in the community, and one of their key lay persons, not one of their pastors, but one of their key lay persons whose name was Stephen, got brought before the council, the same council that Jesus had been brought before some time before. And just like Jesus, Stephen himself had been killed for his testimony about Jesus. He became what we call the very first Christian martyr. And so, after Stephen's martyrdom, which we looked at last week, a great, the Bible says in the text, the opening verses of the text that Carl read for you, the Bible says that a great persecution arose against the church. And now, for the first time in its very short history, we are seeing significant changes in the church, both in its geography and in its ethnicity the kind of people who make up the church, and the places these people call home will change dramatically from this point forward. This is a watershed moment in the life of that, uh, that church. It is now, for the first time, becoming a church on the move. It's becoming a movement. Ironically, the terrible persecution that it underwent in Jerusalem was what propelled it into fulfilling the mandate that Jesus had given to them. Remember, at the beginning of this book, Jesus said, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the ends of the earth. And now we see for the very first time, if you listen carefully to what uh, Carol read for you, that now the gospel has moved outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, and into Samaria, for the first time ever, people without Jewish, who are not full-blooded Jews, these people are responding to the gospel, and it's happening as a result of persecution, as is often the case in the history of the church. 
efforts to stamp it out through persecution only serve to expand its influence. And in the same way, when tough times come upon our lives, they can destroy us or they can bring good out of us. And most all of us, I believe all of us, were we really honest, would say that some of the best growing times in my life have come through the hardest and most difficult experiences of my life. And that's what happened in the life of the church. They became a movement. And I really like that verse, that eighth, I think it's the eighth verse. Let me make sure here. I really like that verse. As they went into Samaria and shared the good news, it says, so there was much joy in that city. There was much joy in that city. So what begins with persecution and suffering and hardship in just a few verses turns into great joy in the city. I found it to be a compelling thought. That's why I call this message Joy in This City, that somehow these people were able to go up into a thoroughly pagan neighborhood which had no real familiarity uh, with, uh, uh, with the, the Jewish traditions. I mean, they had some familiarity, but they were... Um, and a hated group to Jews, that these people who are of a different ethnic background um, could come in and be there for a short period of time, and while they were there, someone could say, there he brought great joy to the city. I don't know about you, but I do know about me. I would like for Ecclesia, the church at the chip, to bring great joy to this city. Wouldn't you like that? not just to us as we gather, not even just to maybe this establishment, but that there would be some joy that would come into this town. I would like for our church to be a blessing to this community. Do you join me in that? I trust you do. I know you do. Yes. So let's ask ourselves a question. How does a church learn to bring joy to its city? How can a church bring joy to the city. What can we learn from this story to help us become a church on the move, a church which brings joy to our city? And it seems to me that there are three characteristics, and Brian's got the first one up there for you already. The three characteristics are the church will bring joy to its city when it releases its people, when it blesses its community, and when it lives the Jesus way. Let's take the first one together. A church will bring joy to the city when it learns to release its people. I found a picture of St. Philip the Divine, who was the guy who's the, the, the main character of this story in St. Philip's Cathedral there in Leicester, uh, uh, how you say it, I don't know how you say it, in England somewhere. And uh, I probably didn't say it right. It looks like it says Leicester to me, but it's probably spoken differently than that. That's, is that right? Yeah, okay. I, thank you, Paul. I should have asked you before. As soon as I started to say they thought, I know those kinds of words, they all combine together. They don't come out like they should in English. You, you think they knew how to speak English in England, but I guess they... Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> it's Leicester, you say? In Leicester, England. Okay, so that's a, from an old uh, uh, carving of, of Philip the Divine. So I just put that picture up there. So first of all, a church will bring joy to its city when it releases its people. Now, I'll have to unpack these ideas for you, and hopefully they'll be encouraging and helpful to you. A church will bring joy to its city when it releases its people to share the good news. All right, when it releases its people to share the good news. Now, let's take a closer look, and uh, we're going to spend most of our time in the first eight verses of this text here this morning. Um, take a closer look at the context. In verses 1 to 3, many things are happening. First of all, you see 
um, the, they, that Stephen, and this actually happens in the verse just before it, that Stephen had been stoned. And I won't repeat that whole story, but let's just say, as I mentioned at the very beginning, that Stephen, who was a lay person in the church, not an ordained clergy, but a, but a lay person in the church, had been stoned by the people, the Jewish people. And this was the very first death that had occurred as a result of the, uh, of the gospel. So he had been stoned, and we see that it says there, and Saul approved of his execution. Now, if you've read your Bible uh, and are familiar with the story, you know that this is speaking about a man whom we call, not Saul, but do you know? Paul, yes. Uh, but when, before Saul was known as Paul, um, he was a devout religious leader, a young, up-and-coming religious leader in the Pharisee tradition within the Jewish faith. And he had been there, and Luke is sure to tell us that Saul not only earlier it says that the clothes have been put at Saul's feet, and now it says that Saul approved of his death. And when we get to the ninth chapter, we will learn about Saul's miraculous conversion, which changed history. But that's all further in the story. So we see that Saul had approved, and he, had been an, and he began to become an active persecutor of the church. It says next that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. Remember, when you see the word church, always think ecclesia, against ecclesia in Jerusalem, and they were scattered. So there was a great persecution. Now it was no longer safe to be a Christian anymore in Jerusalem and in the areas around there. And so it says the people were scattered. So instead of having all this close-knit community where they all share things together, all of a sudden great persecution happens and the people are scattered. It says everybody was scattered except for whom? Except for the apostles. Okay? They are all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The apostles had probably stayed underground, undercover in there, and people started to go off. And so this is the context into which we see this story starting. And we see that as the story begins, it says, but Paul was ravaging the church. Excuse me. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is a very violent man. This is a very unseemly uh, set of behaviors. He's carrying out not just men, but women as well, which indicates to us the important place that women held in the leadership of those churches. You would take the leaders. You see, they pull them in, and the women. So this is the context, and so the apostles are underground. Um, there's lots of confusion, certainly. So you'd think this is a bad time for the church, and of course it was. But what was the result of these things? The killing of Stephen an important leader in the church, the, uh, the persecution which has been happened, the, the, the scattering of the, of the disciples, did it stamp out that movement? No, not even close. What does happen? Verse 4 to 8 tells us that the church was strengthened, that it became stronger and grew in the midst of that persecution. The Bible says that as the people went out, they, quote, preached the Word. You see that in verse 5? Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Now, these, the, who was scattered? The, the apostles? No. They had been in, left in Jerusalem. This is the rank-and-file people. You see, this is becoming a movement. You see, there had been great 
preachers in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the teaching and the, uh, of the Word of God and the prayer for the people of God. But now these teachers, these great leaders and teachers are, are at home base in Jerusalem, and now the people are off on their own. And the Bible says they went and they, uh, they, uh, um, and they went about preaching the Word. Unfortunately, that... That really shouldn't be the word, preaching the word, because the actual word is they went and evangelized the word. It's not the word for preaching. That's used with regard to Philip, which is there in verse 5 when it says he proclaimed to them the Christ. Okay? So, evangelized or evangelio, and they shared the good news of the gospel. And then Philip later was curios or curuso preaching or proclaiming the Word of God. The words are different. So this is not saying that they're going out and holding public meetings, although perhaps they might have done that. But what it's really saying is that the gospel had become such a part of their lives that even though they were away from their leaders, they were so well-equipped that they just, in the course of natural conversation, just smelled like Jesus. You ever see someone who smells not so good (laughs) or smells very good? The Bible says that we're supposed to have the aroma of Christ. And somehow, just as they went their way, I kind of think of it as they gossiped the gospel. You know, we all gossip something. They just gossiped the gospel. They were excited about Jesus. Excuse me. Certainly, a lot of them were confused. They were displaced. They were worried. They didn't know, but what... And so people would ask them, what's going on? And somehow, in the midst of what was obviously terrible times for these people, they couldn't help but talk about Jesus. They evangelized, evangelio, uh, evangelized the Word, evangelion, the Word. The great preachers were in Jerusalem, but these people had been well-fed. They were equipped. They were prepared to share the good news that they had heard. They, as I said, gossiped the gospel. They breathed it. They lived it. They shared it. It just sort of came out from them, something about the way that they lived, and the good news continued to move forward. There are many people who think that God used the persecution on purpose to get those people outside of Jerusalem so they'd stop just being their own holy, holy little huddle so they'd be moved out and have to go and do what it is that God had called them to do. Lacking their teachers, they just shared what they knew with everyone they met. And before, uh, before it, it seemed as though everything went through the apostles. Remember at the very beginning, they were the ones who preached. They are the ones who prayed. They are the ones who served the poor. They are the ones who so- spoke before the authorities. But things have begun to change. Remember that conflict in Acts chapter 6? Others began to now serve the poor and were commissioned to do that. Others became great preachers like Stephen the layman. Others were called before the magistrates. And now, when persecution forced the apostles underground and scattered the people everywhere, it was the lay people, not the apostles, who expanded the church's ministry and scope. You see, the church brought joy to its city because ministry was not... uh, trapped among a few paid professionals, but it was spread out among the people. Um, The church's ministry and scope began to expand, and so look what happened as a result of that. Philip, it says, went to the city of Samaria and proclaimed, and here we do have the first occurrence of the word preached, proclaimed them the Christ. Now, we'll take a closer look at this in a moment, but for now, just merely note this. It was Philip who was a lay person. 
It was Philip who first realized and was willing to take the risk to share the gospel to a non-Jewish person. He was the first one to do it. It was Philip, a lay person, who first realized that the gospel was not just for Jews, it was for everyone. It was Philip, a lay person, who first took the risk to preach the good news to these, and they were, hated Samaritans. Think about the worst ethnic conflicts that you can imagine, both in history lessons and in your own personal experience, and you would then know what it is like how Jewish people felt about Samaritan people. But Philip had been changed by his encounter with the gospel, and now when he goes into Samaria, he does exactly what Jesus had done a long time before. Remember in John chapter 4, he begins to share the good news about Jesus. He didn't know any better. He hadn't read the rule book. He just, just, he couldn't help it. You see, the first, this is so significant in the history of the church, the first non-Jewish converts to Jesus came as the result of the preaching of a layperson, not the preaching of the apostles. The, the apostles, and particularly Peter and others, they backed their way into this kicking and screaming. You remember later on, Peter had been up in, a, a, in, in, in prayer, and the Lord came to him in a vision and said, go do what I tell you to do. And so the Lord basically makes him share the gospel with Cornelius, a Roman centurion. Philip didn't need that. He just wanted to share it with people. See, they had set people free. You see, if movement happens and the city is blessed, when people are not trapped inside their church building where that's where they get to be holy and live in their own little holy huddles and stagecoaches. No, stagecoaches. Well, that's good for, you know, you're circling the wagons. Um, I hope we don't actually live in a stagecoach, but maybe you do. Um, but when they, so many churches are, are, are looked at that way, this private little group. But no, we're, we're the, the city is blessed when we move out. And the glow of Jesus just seems to happen from our faces. We serve in the way that Jesus served. We love in the way that Jesus loved. We care for people in the way that people, Jesus cared for people. We teach them about Jesus in the way that Jesus taught about himself. And the world is blessed. It's so important to see this. Our church will bless this city when we learn how to just be broken in serving and following Jesus in the midst of this city. It's so profound to me that it was not some grand design by a mission committee in the midst of the Jerusalem Council that said, hey, we've got to grow this church. Let's develop a plan and a strategy to do that. No one ever did that, and yet that's what we do often, isn't it? We get the group, the, you know, the head muckety-mucks together. We make a plan. We implement it. We say, now you all get on board and do this. The church all the way through often grew despite the bumblings of people. You know, it was not because of some mission plan that was put into action by the leaders of the church. It was ordinary believers taking the opportunity to share the message wherever they went. The apostles had an important leadership role to fulfill. They provide the overall vision and the great basic teaching for what's going on. They were a stabilizing influence, but the church moved forward under the power of the Holy Spirit. It moved over not because of some carefully conceived business plan, no, it was a movement. It was a movement. God used the persecution to turn the church into a movement, and God uses us to do this too. Everybody owned the vision of the church, and therefore the church was able to serve everybody. And what caused this? Persecution. 
They had to be prepared for it through the teaching of the disciples, of the apostles. But it was persecution in hard times. The Bible says there arose on that day a great persecution against the ecclesia in Jerusalem. Now, I know we go through difficult times, and it's generally not the kind of persecution that we see in that day, although perhaps we experience that. But we go through hard times, things, plans that go awry, problems that come into our lives, but God can use those to bring about blessing to us and through us to other people. Yes. So when you go through tough times, before we move to our next point, I just encourage you, ask yourself a couple of questions. Ask yourself, Lord, what do you want to teach me? What do you want to teach me in the midst of this? And secondly, Lord, how do you want to use me? How do you want to use me in the midst of this? You see, the church grew because there were everyday people sharing the gospel in everyday life. So a church brings joy to its city when it releases its people, and secondly, when it blesses its community. A church brings joy to its people, to its, to the, to its city, when it blesses its community in word and deed. Look what's happening here in verses 4 to 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the, church, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Philip went into the city as an example now. And what did he do? Did he and that small community of believers around him circle their wagons, hide out, and lick their wounds? No precisely the opposite. He served that city. He blessed that community. The presence of that church in that town brought great joy to the city. What did he do that brought such great joy to the city? The text suggests two things in verse 6. It says, and the crowd with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did saw the signs that he did. What were the two things that happened? They were responsive to Philip and his friends because they heard what Philip had said and they saw what Philip had done. They heard something and they saw something. They heard his words, they saw his deeds, and both were needed. All too often we have deeds without words or words without deeds. We need them both or we will not gain a hearing. It clearly tells us in the sixth verse that they responded to what was being said because of what they had seen that had been done. Both are necessary. They heard what Philip said. What did Philip say? It says, Philip proclaimed to them the Christ. He proclaimed to them the Messiah. And if you were to rewind your mind to a conversation that Jesus had with a woman by a well in Samaria in John chapter 4, you will remember perhaps that when Jesus is breaking all social convention by stopping and talking to this woman by a well and intriguing her by his cryptic answers to her questions, she ultimately says, I know that Messiah, when he appears, will explain all this to us. And how did Jesus respond? I that speak unto thee am he. That's how he said it, because he, of course, spoke King James English in the first century. I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. She runs off and leaves her water pot, and she says to everybody, 
look, I met a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? What did Philip come down then some time later, a few months or years later from the time that Jesus had been there? He comes and he proclaims the same message that Jesus himself had said. He proclaimed the message that Jesus was the Messiah. He proclaimed to them the Christ. The preaching ministry is always vital. He didn't just preach ethics, how to be good in a bad culture. He didn't just, just rail against the culture. He didn't lambast the Samaritans for all their wrong theology. What he did was just preach to them the Christ, the Messiah. The word Christ, by the way, and Messiah are the same word, okay? Christ is the Greek way of saying Messiah. He preached Christ. Christ is always central. That would have been such great news to these people. They'd always found themselves on the outside looking in, despised by their Jewish cousins. But Philip goes in and he says, the good news is that the Christ has come for you. He's died for you. He's risen for you. He's offered you forgiveness and new resurrection life. That was a great message. But it wasn't just what they heard. It was also what they saw. They saw what Philip did. There's an important principle here. Words and deeds must go together. People will, we say, will believe what we say only if they see that it's consistent with what we do. If the two align, they will respond. The Bible says the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said when they heard him and saw the signs. Well, what did Philip do? Well, I would summarize it this way. We don't have a lot of time, but very briefly, Philip brought healing to that city. He brought healing to the brokenness of that city. He brought spiritual healing, physical healing, and, yes, racial healing to that city. Spiritual healing. It says, he cast out unclean spirits who left with a loud shriek. People who had been violently oppressed and had spiritual needs, God used him to release them from that oppression. This brought blessing to families that were broken by spiritual oppression of one sort or another. And then he also brought physical healing. It says many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Physical healing, spiritual healing. This was part of the ministry of the gospel, and it varies and wanes at various times throughout history for whatever reasons, whether it's God's plan or human faithlessness. I don't know, but God always wants to bring physical and spiritual healing to People. And so when we come in, we come in to meet needs. So we should come in to serve the poor, to take care of the sick, to visit those who are hurting, to wrap our arms around, to be agents of healing in a, a culture filled with brokenness and death. But it wasn't just those two, physical and spiritual healing. It was also, and this is critical to understand, racial healing. He proclaimed to them the Christ, to whom? to these despised Samaritan people, people that Jews have been brought up to hate. This is actually what the whole eighth chapter is all about. It's talking about the bringing together the gospel of all people groups, Jews, Samaritans, black Ethiopians, all of them are being brought. A new family is starting. A new community is being given. God is creating one out of all the different cultures of the earth. We're no longer divided, and no longer can we hate and abuse and take advantage and disenfranchise those who are different than ourselves. The gospel comes to us in the midst of our brokenness. We respond to Him 
God reaches over that boundary to us. How then do we go to someone else who also is broken in one sense or another and not offer to them the same grace and forgiveness and love that we ourselves have received from God? Yes, the whole eighth chapter shows us that God reaches across those boundaries. The gospel had not just been given just to the Jews, but for Samaritans and for Africans and even to Americans, believe it or not, centuries later. This is the first guy who realized that you could respond to the gospel. You owe him a great debt because he went across those barriers. Jews, as you know, held deep hatred for Samaritans. They avoided them as much as possible, but Philip had embraced them. He had shared with them the good news that Jesus had come for them. The gospel always works to break down racial barriers. Well, all, and, and, and you know, we live, oh, so much I'd love to say, we live in such a fractured society, and we, for some reason, we good Christian people somehow think it's okay for us to give negative epithets to people who believe different than us, who act different than us, who look different than us, who are born in a different country than us, who voted different than us, who do politics in a way different than us. We, we have to be very careful that we do not create division where Jesus came to bring together. Enough said? Be careful how you speak. I'm not saying we agree with everything that you see out there, but we should always be respectful. Yes, the gospel brings about racial healing and blessing as well. So we can seek to bless our community too. We can pray for those who are sick. We can serve those who are poor. We can become agents of re reconciliation. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but our beloved town of Cave Creek sometimes doesn't always get along with itself very well. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe that's news to you. So when I first moved here, someone says, you know what CAVE stands for, right? Citizens Against Virtually Everything. <laughs> I laughed when I thought about it. That's not very nice. We should be agents of reconciliation and not participate in the negative things that happen even around the dinner tables of our community. Be people who bring people together as best we can. I'm not saying we don't have differences. We do, and those differences matter. But the differences are never more important than the gospel, and we should always remember that. People will hear what we say when they see what we do. And lastly... And briefly, a church will bring joy to its city when it lives the Jesus way. When it lives the Jesus way. What was the Jesus way? The Jesus way was the way of life coming out of death. The way of sacrifice and love conquering sin and evil. We see it in the, all the way through this story. Life and joy grew out of sorrow and suffering. I wish I could take time to tell you more about it, but there was tremendous sorrow and suffering at the beginning of this verse, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. But then it turned into tremendous joy and gladness at the end, and that's the way it happens. You know, life and joy grew out of sorrow and suffering. Stephen died, and there was suffering, but look what happened. The misery of death and suffering only resulted in life and joy. New life came to the church even in the midst of its persecution. And great joy came to the city. That's the pattern that we see in Jesus, of course. 
Jesus gave his life and was raised from the dead to bring new life. Instead of death conquering him and, and sadness conquering him, that death and sadness resulted in what? Joy and resurrection life. It was the pattern in Stephen as well, and it is the pattern, again, all of us who go through death in one sense or another. Yes, we embrace the Jesus way. We see, what, look what happened in this text. When others sought to bring destruction to the church, what happened to the church? The church did expand it. When others sought to scatter the church, what happened instead? It gathered the church in communities everywhere. When others tried to kill the church, what happened instead? There came more life. You see, if you try to put the church to death, it only leads to resurrection. And when death happens to you and around you and in your life, it never has to have the last word. You can, you can have joy even in the midst of of difficult moments because Jesus died and was raised from the dead. That's a message we're sharing. Let's become a joy to our city by being released to serve this pe these people in Jesus' name and word and deed and to always say, Father, forgive them even when we are misunderstood. If we do that, God will turn our church into a movement which brings joy to this city. Let's have prayer as we close. Dear Jesus, we're grateful and thankful that you conquered death and the grave and that the church is the result of that and that all the way through history, death has never had the last word and may it not have our last word. We live in a community of death and brokenness and suffering, but help us to embrace all of that and to find hope in the midst of it as we serve people in Jesus' name, may we bring great joy to this city. And may any of us who are here today who are suffering receive joy in the midst of our sorrow. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.